Welcome, and thank you for listening to this presentation hosted by the Center for Catholic Studies, located at Durham University in Durham, United Kingdom, a Center for Catholic Theology in the Public Academy. For more information, visit our website at www.centerforcatholicstudies.co.uk or follow us on Twitter at CCSDHAM. The following lecture was presented on the 30th of April, 2019, by Professor John McGreevy, the Francis A. McEnany Professor of History at the University of Notre Dame. The lecture was given as part of the Ushaw Lecture Series and is entitled Jacques Maritain, Democratic Crisis and the Promise and Peril of a Global Catholic History. Thank you. Uh, thanks, first of all, to Paul Murray, Director of the Center for Catholic Studies, to James, Professor James Kelly, who's been an extraordinary host, to myself and my wife, Jean McManus, over the past two days, and everyone at Durham for their gracious welcome of me. Uh, it's a lovely and stimulating place. I've heard so much about Durham over the years. James mentioned that Notre Dame and Durham and other universities have had a partnership, but there's a very particular one between Notre Dame and Durham. I've heard so much about Durham over the years, it's become a kind of brigadoon in my imagination. Does it really exist, I thought? Or, or are these glossy pamphlets a figment of Google's imagination? Could there really be a center for Catholic studies tucked beneath the shadow of a medieval cathedral with a glorious library and even a role in the Harry Potter films so beloved by our children? Could there be an almost complete Reformation era library? Well, it turns out there is, uh, and there was. And it's just been marvelous being here over the past two days. So, should Catholics endorse democracy? The answer seems obvious to us, but it did not seem obvious in 1939. In the anxious months after the German invasion of Poland, the most important Catholic intellectual of the mid-20th century, French philosopher Jacques Maritain, mulled over titles for the English translation of his latest book. Maritain thought sustained analysis of Catholicism and democracy, quote, absolutely urgent, end quote. But he knew the topic was explosive. His editor suggested scholasticism and democracy, or better to use the more benign politics and scholasticism, Maritain countered, because the word democracy, Maritain said, has become so ambiguous among Catholics, end quote. Now, why was that commonplace word, democracy, so ambiguous to Maritain, at least in his perception, Catholics in 1939? The fragility of contemporary democracies has prompted historians and political scientists to scrutinize the underpinnings of democratic regimes. Democracy in the era of Xi Jinping, Vladimir Putin, and yes, Donald Trump, seems less certain than it did just after the fall of the Berlin Wall. I'll note for the record here that as an American lecturing outside the United States, it took me only 35 seconds to mention the 45th president of the United States. I promise not to mention him again. <laughs> Protestantism occupies a familiar niche in the scholarly literature on religion and democracy, as Martin Luther and the 17th century Puritans understood as taking developmental democratic steps. The study of Islam and democracy is a growth industry. Catholics typically play only walk-on roles. Now this imbalance is unsurprising, and it's not wrong. Democracy is the dog that does not bark in modern Catholic social thought, and evidence linking Catholicism to the delayed development 
of democratic politics dots the scholarly literature. This sense of antagonism between Catholicism and democracy was not always true. This is going to be one of the themes of the book I'm working on, or at least it wasn't obvious in the early 19th century. Oddly enough, that's the period that historians now often call the age of democratic revolutions. Then, again, late 18th, early 19th century, figures such as Father Henri Gregoire, the great French revolutionary, and Father Savan Mir, his close friend in Mexico, and one of the leading figures in the fight for Mexican independence, and others, advocated for democracy and even human rights, such as the abolition of slavery, on distinctly Catholic grounds. The most famous Catholic advocate for democracy, indeed the most important of the 19th century was, anyone want to guess? The most famous Catholic advocate for democracy, the most important, I think, of the 19th century, someone from the British Isles. Anyone? I think Daniel O'Connell. Uh, and his electoral campaigns for Catholic emancipation in the 1820s, and then the repeal of the Union with Great Britain, electrified a generation of reform-minded Catholics in the world. Indeed, I'm told a speech, an unknown speech by O'Connell, was recently discovered in the Ushaw collections. But Catholic theory lagged Catholic practice. O'Connell died in 1847, and the revolutions across Europe and Latin America in 1848, and especially the attacks on Pius IX in Rome, shifted Catholic thought in a very different direction. Catholics in Europe and South America did form defensive Catholic political parties in the late 19th century, the Center Party in Germany and many parties in Latin America, and in so doing spread democracy on both sides of the Atlantic. Even so, beginning in the 1850s, democracy came to seem one form of government or one regime among others for Catholics. As disparate as the Jesuits writing for Civita Cattolica in Rome, Montreal's leading Catholic editor, and equivalents from Santiago to Budapest. The future English Cardinal, Nicholas Wiseman, about to begin a generation-long campaign to bring a more Roman ethos to Catholic life in Britain, a Roman ethos we can see around us here, he said in 1844, I see no Catholicity in O'Connell's work. I fear it is thoroughly of this world. Repeal, universal suffrage, democracy, etc. I have all along hated them and detested them and do so as yet. The very term democracy for many Catholics became equated with rule by fickle or corrupt masses, absent the guiding principles that should inform a just polity. That so many newly democratic governments in the late 19th century, from Mexico to Colombia to Germany to Italy, expressed antagonism toward Catholicism, sometimes seizing Catholic properties and expelling priests and nuns, that antagonism codified this Catholic suspicion of democracy. Now I should add that Catholics were not the only people suspicious of democracy in the 19th century. Abraham Lincoln's invocation of government of, by, and for the people was not a 19th century norm. Still, well into the 20th century, Catholics such as Eugenio Pacelli, the future Pope Pius XII, used the term, quote, parliamentary politics, unquote, with scorn as indicative of compromises and shifting political ambitions. Instead of the uncertainty and risk of the ballot box, Catholic leaders and intellectuals such as Pacelli preferred concordats or treaties that could guarantee by law funding for parochial schools or Catholic control over family life issues. A famous debate among German Catholics broke out in 1922 
And it ended with Cardinal Michael Feldhuber from Munich deriding democratic politics and indeed helping to erode Catholic support of the Weimar government to the horror of a young future chancellor of West Germany, Konrad Adenauer. The consequences of this relatively fragile, in theory, Catholic commitment to democracy became tragically evident in the 1930s. By this time, Catholics around the world were disproportionately willing to support corporatist, occasionally even fascist, governments. They often disparaged liberal capitalism. And in this sense, their anti-liberalism was quite consistent and disdained democratic process and civil liberties. The Austrian Chancellor Engelbert Dollfuss announced in 1933 that he planned to dissolve the elected parliament, promising to build a Catholic German state inspired by the 1931 papal encyclical, Quadragesimo Anno. He dismissed the era of liberal and capitalistic systems, unquote, as anachronistic. Catholics in Britain, Canada, and the Philippines expressed, in retrospect, remarkable admiration for the authoritarian leader, uh, Portugal's uh, Antonio Salazar, who was a former Catholic youth leader who in the 1930s declared the obsolescence of political parties based on, quote, the individual, the citizen, or the elector. Surveying Catholic Europe in 1941, the French Catholic philosopher Yves Simon, who was exiled from France just before 1939 and ended up living about three blocks uh, from where uh, my wife and I live in South Bend, Indiana, while he was teaching at Notre Dame, Simon complained in a letter to Maritain that if Thomas Aquinas were alive today, he would be for Franco in Spain, for Tizo, the uh, priest who was the authoritarian leader of Slovakia, for Patan, uh, Marechal Patan, the leader of the Vichy government in France. Both Simone and Maritain regretted the isolationism of many Catholics, even faculty at Notre Dame, and the continued visibility in the United States of Father Charles Coghlan, who seemed to Maritain a variation on anti-Semitic Catholic reactionaries in Belgium. Now, how did we get here? As is well known, Maritain began his philosophical career in the early 20th century with little interest in democracy and human rights. His conversion to Catholicism, along with his wife, Raisa, who's a crucial figure, was a philosophical and religious matter, not a political one. His first major publication took a defiantly anti-modern stance toward, quote, universal suffrage, equal rights, and liberty of opinion, end quote, when demanded by individuals and unconnected to a common good. In this, he echoed and reinforced the then standard Catholic view, the ultramontane view, seen in individualism, a root of contemporary disarray. Despite race and Maritain's Judaism, she was Jewish before converting, uh, even Jacques Maritain's initial characterization of Jews as playing a, quote, subversive role in the world reflected the anti-modernism and the anti-Semitism that was characteristic, not just of Catholic intellectuals in the early 20th century, but of many of them. When Al Smith uh, was the first Catholic nominee for presidency for the presidency of the United States in 1928, and he had to defend himself against accusations that he would simply be a tool of the Vatican, Maritain worried that Smith, quote, had authored a liberal manifesto, end quote. But Maritain changed. The crucial event was the condemnation in 1927 of Charles Marat uh, by Pope Pius XI. Marat was a French uh, intellectual and, and, and very conservative leader who led a group called the Action Francaise, 
which promised to try and restore uh, authoritarian rule, in a sense, in French society. And that condemnation of Marat for his French nationalism, the placing of nationalism above religion by Pope Pius XI, was a major event. Uh, it sent shockwaves across French Catholicism, and indeed, in the broader French Catholic diaspora in Canada and Francophone Africa. One French cardinal sympathetic to the Action Francaise, uh, Louis Billot, resigned in protest uh, at Pius XI's action, his condemnation of the Action Francaise. Indeed, he was the last cardinal to resign his position until this year, when Washington's Theodore McCarrick was forced to resign. The condemnation of Action Francaise was especially meaningful for Maritain. You can see in his papers, which are in Strasbourg and actually in South Bend as well, and his writing, they begins to rethink his basic assumptions about democracy. He's still opposed to what he calls liberalism, but he's feeling his way in the late 20s, early 30s, toward a Catholic defense of democracy. He enters into a long-running debate within French Catholicism about what Thomas Aquinas, who was a bit opaque on the matter, what would Thomas Aquinas think about democratic politics as opposed to other versions, insisting that Aquinas would support democratic politics. And many of Maritain's opponents in this discussion, he had opponents who thought Aquinas would never support democracy, uh, ended up being supporters of Vichy France. Maritain made lecture tours in Spain, 1934, Poland, 1934, Canada, 1934, and 1936, the United States, 1934, and 1938, Brazil and Argentina, 1934, and 1936, and these tours brought his ideas about democracy and Catholicism before an extraordinarily global Catholic audience. I'm just going to show you a few photos. So this photo uh, that's on the talk slide is Maritain. Uh, that's his wife, Raisa, with the hat. On the far right is uh, a young man. Actually, I'm going to go up. Okay, we have it there. Uh, on the far right is a young man, Eduardo Fry later president of Chile in, in the mid-1960s, elected in 1964. This is 1933. It's at a Catholic youth conference that gathered uh, youth leaders from Latin America primarily, including Fry and a man who's not in the photo, Rafael Caldera, who later becomes president of Venezuela, all trying to rethink uh, what should be the relationship of Catholicism to democratic politics. Uh, and Fry and Caldera meet, go on to Paris to help Maritain teach a course in 1933. Here's Maritain with his great friend, the Swiss theologian Charles Journet. They're both honored uh, at the Second Vatican Council, and Maritain and Journet have a long correspondence uh, about what democracy should mean for Catholics. Here's Maritain in Poland in 1934. Maritain, uh, this is not Maritain, I'm sorry, but the man uh, there is his great uh, rival, I'm just blanking on his name now, but great Thomas theologian who uh, insists that uh, Catholicism is not necessarily in, in, in uh, favor of democracy. The Father Gerju Lagrange, uh, cluster of Maritain with his disciples on the far right is one of the leading uh, Japanese Catholics who has a very prominent role in Japan in the late 1930s and early 1940s, trying to articulate a case for democracy within Japanese fascist uh, context. This is Maritain landing in Brazil with uh, Alceu Mera, who's one of the leading Brazilian Catholic intellectuals, and Maritain in Argentina. Let's skip here. This is Maritain in Portugal, meaning with uh, the people he's, he offers a month-long seminar there. Maritain again in Argentina. A map of where he is. 
These lecture tours, which generate enormous attention everywhere Maritan goes, they really are uh, energetic events for the Catholic communities, become the basis of Maritan's 1936 book, Integral Humanism, one of the most influential political texts of the 20th century. And in this book, Integral Humanism, Maritain remained anchored in the anti-individualism of the Ultramon Catholicism that began in the mid-19th century, but with a few important twists, including a charitable reading of the newly published manuscripts of the young Karl Marx about the alienation of workers in a capitalist system. Maritain's focus on the person connected to local communities, churches, trade unions, and political parties as opposed to, at least in his eyes, the abstract individual associated with the French Revolution uh, was central to his thought. Uh, he argued that a democratic politics made sense, even might be required by the gospel and Catholic tradition. Catholics from around the world read integral humanism avidly in one of a number of immediate translations. But of course, his audiences did not always agree. I'm currently writing a one-volume narrative history of global Catholicism from the French Revolution to Pope Francis. And I'm doing this for several reasons. Uh, the most important is that in the current moment, uh, I think there are many reasons. Uh, it's a sobering and even grim moment, many reasons for Catholic self-reflection. I'm doing it too because the Second Vatican Council, arguably the most important religious event of the 20th century, has now passed from the realm of living memory into history with very few of the key actors still with us. The still apparently active pen of Joseph Rossinger, uh, as we've been recently reminded over the past couple of weeks, is an exception to that generation, but in ba on balance, we really have moved from the realm of living memory to history. The most important context for the council, the Cold War, decolonization, the slow coming to grips with the horror of the Second World War, are also passing from, history to, from memory to history as well. And we now have a sharper sense of how that ultramontane worldview that we see around us from the 1850s and the reaction to the French Revolution was only a phase, a moment, a long moment, uh, but not an end to the history of Catholicism in the modern era. I'm also doing it because global history is one of the most important historical projects for the historians in the room of our generation. I think what social history was to the 1960s and 1970s what cultural history was to the 80s and the 90s. Like all swerves in disciplinary thinking, it reverberates with the world around us. It picks up on our contemporary ability to purchase goods that were manufactured six weeks ago in China in a store in Durham, our delight in reading local papers thousands of miles away from home, our Facebook friends all over the globe. Global history has inspired important work on cotton and sugar as commodities and how they shape consumption and labor practices. It's inspired work on diseases such as, the, such as cholera and how they do not respect national boundaries. And like all disciplinary fashions, it has its traps, and I hope I won't fall into too many of them. But this global consciousness also provides a professional opportunity, maybe even a professional obligation, for historians interested in Catholicism. Put bluntly, for the world since 1500, Catholicism is indisputably the world's most global, most multilingual, and most, most multicultural institution. Full stop. If you attend mass or appear into a Catholic school, certainly here in Durham, but certainly in London or, or other metropolitan areas, I suspect you will see some of that diversity, 
And in fact, parish congregations around the world are now more diverse in terms of income and ethnicity than most community organizations. So to perhaps state the obvious, religious ideas and institutions are among the most globalized of a globalizing era. We see all of that with Maritain. If you look at this map, it's interesting to trace the different reactions he received around the Catholic world. When he went to Poland, his work was avidly received in the mid-1930s, work on Catholicism and democracy. But of course, Polish Catholics did, had a very short window with which to practice democracy since the Nazis and the Soviets both invaded Poland in 1939. In that sense, Polish Catholic reflection on Maritain and democracy was still born. But we know, though, that even, even Maritain's followers in Poland often displayed the anti-Semitism so characteristic of that era's Catholic milieu. They saw Jews as an incursion on the national religious community that they hoped to build and as part of the problem of modernism so distasteful to Catholics since the late 19th century. In that sense, Polish Catholics filtered Maritain, keeping the interest in democracy, downplaying the focus on human rights, a very painful irony for Maritain, as I said, was himself married uh, to a Jew, and by the late 1930s has seen anti-Semitism as linked to the rejection of democracy. In the Anglophone democracies, such as Canada, the United States, and Britain, Maritain was well-received, and of course the context in those countries was already democratic. Even here, though, there were sympathies or, or tensions uh, that Maritain encountered during his visits. Uh, he was widely seen in Canada, the United States, and England as too uh, insufficiently sympathetic to the need for order. The British Catholic editor Bernard Wall wrote in 1936, to the liberals such as Maritain, we say the age of compromise is all over and done with. Liberal democracy in Europe is bankrupt. In Portugal and Spain, Maritain spoke just before the Spanish Civil War, where he famously refused to support Francisco Franco and the Republican side in that war to the dismay of many Catholics. Franco's triumph in the Spanish Civil War meant that Maritain's proposals on democracy and Catholicism, later on religious freedom, could barely get a hearing until the 1950s. In Chile, Argentina, and Brazil, Catholics passionately debated Maritain's ideas. He was well-received in Brazil, where in 1938, a political party based on his ideas began, and which eventually became the Chilean uh, Christian Democratic Party, less well-received in Brazil and Argentina, and where Catholics were more attracted to corporatist, even fascist political parties. This all brings us back to 1941, when Maritain and Simone were corresponding. Uh, the war was, of course, crucial. France has fallen by 1941, and Maritain is in exile in the United States and Canada. He redoubles his energy, uh, writing furiously for the length of the war on the topic of Catholicism and democracy. And his book on the topic comes out in 1943. He persuades his friend Etienne Gilson, the French medieval philosopher, to write a book on the topic, and he also does. That comes out in 1946. They're both thrilled when the Pope uh, Pius XII, in his Christmas message of 1944, more or less endorses democracy as a form of government and uses some of Maritain's phrasing. Uh, he pledges uh, to work deeply with Latin American Catholics, and he does from about 44 to 48, trying to generate Christian democratic parties there. And indeed, a group of them get together in Montevideo, Uruguay, in 1946, just after the war, and salute Maritain as the only teacher 
who can lead us out of the great economic and political difficulties confronted by the continent. By 1960, in fact, if you went around the world and said, how has Jacques Maritain influenced politics, you'd have quite a list. Uh, the list would include, and these are all people who very explicitly read and cited Maritain. Conrad Adenauer from West Germany, Alcide de Gaspari from Italy, leaders of uh, Europe's most prominent post-war Christian Democratic parties, Robert Schumann, who's Prime Minister of France briefly, Charles de Gaulle, who corresponds with Maritain while mobilizing free French forces during the war and appoints Maritain as ambassador to the Vatican in 1945. It would include Leopold Senghor from Senegal and Ngo Dinh Diem from South Vietnam, both raised in the French Empire, both explicitly reading Maritain. By 1970, it would include Eduardo Fry from Chile, who I mentioned, Rafael Caldera from Venezuela, and Pierre Trudeau. By 1980, it would include Napoleon Duarte from El Salvador. It did not include John Kennedy, another Catholic political leader, whose intellectual formation seems to have been entirely innocent of Catholic social thought, but it would include his brother-in-law, Sergeant Shriver, uh, leader of Chicago's Catholic Interracial Council and the first director of the Peace Corps and the War on Poverty. So what did these statesmen learn? This extraordinary group of statesmen, all influenced by a single Catholic text. The most sophisticated of them learned to see democracy as part of a broader Catholic effort to better engage with the world that would come to its fruition in the Second Vatican Council. No longer, they started to think, could Catholics simply practice democracy without defending it in principle. No longer could Catholics simply focus on building Catholic institutions and schools. Listen to a young Pierre Trudeau in 1949. We have to admit that Catholics collectively have rarely been pillars of democracy. I say that to our shame and without seeking to prejudge the future. Catholics manage to confuse spiritual and temporal questions and thus have a hard time settling on any single truth when it comes to count votes. In countries with a large Catholic majority, Poland, Austria, Spain, Portugal, Italy, South America, Catholics often only avoid anarchy by means of authoritarian rule. Where in countries where they're not as strong, France, Germany, the Netherlands, Belgium, the United States, Canada, they accept the separation of church and state, but only as a stopgap measure. Typically, they are focused on their pursuit of Catholic, the Catholic common good. And as a group, they are notable neither for their morality nor for their political insight. Now what's interesting is that after 1945-1946, with democracy ascendant outside of the communist bloc, Maritain stops writing about democracy. Instead, he starts writing about human rights. In the late 1930s, and he develops Catholic interpretations of human rights. In the late 1930s, Pius XI and other Catholic intellectuals had begun speaking of human dignity and rights really for the first time in a Catholic context since the French Revolution. And they were doing it in the context of fears about Soviet communism and Nazi racism. In fact, the Irish Constitution of 1937, which is drafted in part by Irish Jesuits, is the first constitution ever in the world to use the phrase individual human dignity. And during the war, rights language sweeps through Catholic circles in the United States, occupied France, and even Nazi Germany. Maritain famously played a key role in the drafting of the Universal Declaration of Human Rights in 1948. Now the most agonizing human rights puzzle for Catholics after 1945 was religious freedom. When casting their eyes to the Soviet bloc, 
countries and to China in the late 1940s, Catholics could credibly claim to be defending religious freedom. After all, the imprisoned missionaries and bishops and lay people in the communist bloc were a powerful witness to Catholic values. But in a world where Franklin Roosevelt defended freedom of religion as one of the four freedoms animating the fight against fascism, the formal Catholic preference for a unity of church and state, and indeed significant restrictions on public worship in Catholic countries such as Spain and Italy, seemed unacceptable. And there's a critique that emerges in the late 1940s of Catholics as unsympathetic to democracy because they are unsympathetic to human rights. And that's very powerful in the United States, somewhat less powerful in the United Kingdom, uh, but, a, but there in Europe, the United States, Australia, uh, and other places. The risk, if we don't revise our teaching on religious freedom, Maritain pri privately wrote in 1949, was that we will become odious to even well-meaning non-Catholic citizens. So over time, Maritain and others, and the most famous of those others is the American Jesuit, John Courtney Murray, began to formulate a new position on the rights of religious people to worship and preach freely wherever they are in the world. Spanish, German, Italian, Spanish, Catholic, Spanish, German, Italian intellectuals joined this discussion in the late 1940s, led by Murray, led by Maritain, and they especially see democracy as preparing the ground for religious freedom. Even in the United States, very conservative bishops quietly counseled that official teaching on religious liberty should be rethought to demonstrate, quote, that democratic institutions are not in any way uncongenial to the church, end quote. So that was the first issue Maritain focuses on after the war, religious freedom. The second, and it was an easier one, was discrimination and anti-Semitism. Maritain was a leader here too. He was one of the first Catholics to denounce anti-Semitism uh, in both theological and political terms. The magnificent study by John Conley of Catholic teaching on anti-Semitism, which I commend to everyone here, published a, a few years ago, shows us how hard won was the battle to reframe Catholic teaching uh, on the Jews and that culminates in the Second Vatican Council. But it did happen. And indeed, the principle of anti-discrimination in Catholic thought is pretty clear by the 1950s. And figures like Maritain and Yves Congar, the great Dominican, who's a great figure at the Second Vatican Council, are arguing that we need to link anti-Semitism in Europe, discrimination against African-Americans, and even especially African-American Catholics in the American South, and discrimination against Africans and African-American, African Catholics, rather, in South Africa, as one contiguous through line of racial discrimination and something that must be combated at all costs. Indeed, the term race, which they would always put in quotation marks, should not have any place in the church, they're arguing by the early 1950s. A third issue after religious freedom and after race and discrimination was education. And here Catholics like Maritain began to re-articulate old democratic problems in a new human rights idiom. Even in the mid-19th century, this was a big fight. Should Catholic schools receive public funding? And that discussion turned out differently in different countries. It turns out differently in the United Kingdom than it does uh, in the United States. But the fundamental question is, can religious schools, especially religious schools run by Catholics, produce the citizens that democracies need? Again, it's very controversial in the late 1940s. In France, there's a fierce debate over whether or not public funding will be available for Catholic schools, and, and that funding is ultimately de denied. Uh, the same is true in the United States. In West Germany, by contrast, there's uh, the 1949 Basic Law, 
uh, allows uh, very strong funding uh, for Catholic schools. <coughs> Catholics begin to argue that the rights of parents to educate their children is a human rights issue. Indeed, it precedes the right of the state to educate citizens for a democratic polity. As I mentioned, Francis denied, but only until 1958, when Charles de Gaulle, very explicitly using Maritain and, and some of the figures I just quoted, says, no, there should be some public funding for Catholic schools. After this discussion of human rights, what did not occur was the substantive debate about democracy that Maritain thought was going to happen in the late 1940s and early 1950s. Again, Catholic thinking about democracy, some lagged, or rather I should say Catholic theory, lagged Catholic practice. Lots of reading of Maritain, lots of discussion, uh, but in a theoretical way, the, the discussion did not advance very far. Of course, in Eastern Europe, the discussion was shut down uh, by the communists. In Africa, African Catholic students tended not to want to talk about democracy. They wanted to talk about self-determination. The big crisis came in West Germany uh, in the late 1950s and early 1960s, when the West German jurist, Ernest Buchenforder, argued that Catholic voters did not merit blame for the collapse of the Weimar Republic in the 1920s. He's looking back and asking, how did this happen, uh, the collapse of democracy in Germany? Catholic voters weren't the problem, Bokenford said. Instead, in the most controversial essay, arguably in, in post-war German history, uh, Bokenford said the problem was Catholic leaders. It was Catholic leaders in the center party and Catholic leaders in the Vatican who had been willing to negotiate and sign a concordat with Adolf Hitler in 1933 and 1934. And Catholic leaders had behaved this way because they, quote, had a deeply rooted anti-liberalism, which resulted spontaneously in the rejection of democracy in a modern society, and the leaning toward authoritarian government, the leadership idea, and the organic concept of public order. They had cared more about protecting Catholic schools and Catholic institutions than they had cared about the democratic parliamentary state in the Weimar government, of which they had been citizens for 12 years. This debate's going on in West Germany, and then the Second Vatican Council starts. The council, of course, ratifies much of what Maritain had written about in terms of democracy and human rights. Uh, very especially, the, of course, there's wonderful long documents on church's relationship with the Jews and on religious freedom. Maritain, whose ideas are almost condemned in 1958 by Pope Pius XII, are celebrated by 1965 with Paul VI and the last session of the uh, Second Vatican Council in December of 1965, Maritain uh, is called a father of the council by Paul VI, who, who uh, applauds him for taking an active part in public affairs uh, and for helping rethink the Catholic relationship to political life. That said, um, Catholic discussion of democracy in the period after the council is less sophisticated than one might have thought. The Latin American liberation theologians are much more focused on economic issues than they are on political issues. Pope John Paul II uh, is interested in Maritain, has read Maritain as a young man, but is much less interested in his ideas about politics and democracy. Indeed, uh, the focus on, on, on democracy uh, within public life shifts to a focus on democracy within the church. One of the very interesting dynamics of the last five years has been a renewal of interest 
in how democratic processes might play out within the church and what the relationship of that idea of representation might be to democratic political processes outside the church. And we're starting to recover some of the voices of the early 19th century, before the ultramontane era, who argued about exactly that, who said that there should be more of a voice for lay people, there should be more of a voice for prominent ministers, and at that time, royal officials in the selection of bishops or in the selection of priests. That Pope Francis has so focused so intensely on a more synodal form of church government, with formal synods now in the family, on youth, and now in this upcoming fall on the Amazon, and that he has created a consulting body of cardinals outside the Curia, but from around the world, suggests renewed interest in these representational puzzles, not just in political life outside the church, but in political life inside the church. So I'll reiterate this point. Just as a formal endorsement of political democracy did not occur until the late 20th century in Catholic life, so too was formal democracy or lay voice within the church limited. Instead, a monarchical model of increasing authority devolving to the Pope, which is ratified most significantly at Vatican I, and to the bishops, ratified to some degree at Vatican II, became the norm. This in part occurred to resist governmental intrusion into internal Catholic life from the 19th century on, but it had the effect of describing as timeless a model of authority that was quite time-bound. The complexity of the modern nation state as it emerged in the 19th century was in this way mirrored by the complexity of the modern church structure with an updated code of canon law, an expanded Vatican diplomatic service, and successful Vatican efforts to assert control over the missionary enterprise around the world. In all of this, the legacy of the French Revolution and of government attempts to control Catholicism loomed large and Catholics responded by insulating the church and its dense network of institutions from outside influence. But the final irony is this. We now have government intrusion, of course, but of a very different sort, through district attorneys and prosecutors investigating sexual abuse or abuse in government-funded mission schools. Nothing in modern history will do more, I suspect, to weaken the ultramontane model of authority that dates back to the mid-19th century and that paradoxically rose in tandem with a slow appreciation of democracy and political life. In the last three months, Cardinal McCarrick has resigned, or last year, Cardinal McCarrick has resigned. Two more cardinals, Cardinal Pell in Australia, Cardinal Barberlin in France, uh, may serve jail time, even as legitimate questions circulate about their guilt. And so the focus on clerical authority, which dated in some ways back to the mid-19th century, is surely one of the key explanations, less for sexual abuse itself than for its cover-up in Ireland, Germany, Chile, Australia, and the United States. It's obviously one of the great global Catholic problems of the current moment. In 1943, Jacques Maritain pondered writing a Catholic Federalist Papers, that is, a serious meditation on political practice from a Catholic point of view. He ended up not writing it, and it's a pity. Uh, we could use that now as democracy, I think, much more than basic human rights, seems a pressing political and ecclesiastical question. The question in 2019 is not whether Catholics can support democratic governments. They can, they have, they do. The question in 2019 is different. 
It's whether Catholic social thought can absorb and channel what scholars call the institutionalized uncertainty characterizing democratic politics in a time of wavering democratic commitment, and whether that institutionalized uncertainty can now be integrated into the internal life of the church. Thank you.